0: Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. We'll begin reading in a moment from verse 34. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34. For the next several weeks, I will be preaching uh, some messages about worldview. The title of this series is going to be uh, 2020 Vision in 2020. How do you have a 2020 vision as a Christian in the year 2020? And that's what this series is going to be about. Um, And it's about the lens through which you and I view and interpret our world. World Worldview. So, let's get started. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then one other verse that's found in the sixth chapter of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter six, verse 33, a verse that you are very familiar with where Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these things, all the things that you, you and I normally worry about, all these things will be given to you as well. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would start seeing the world like you see the world. That we would start seeing uh, other people the way you see all of us. I pray that as a result of hearing not only this message, but this whole series of messages, I pray that all of us would at least stop for... A few minutes and reevaluate how we view our world. And I pray that we would realize the absolute necessity as Christians of viewing our world through the lens of Jesus. That's my prayer, Lord. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid and later when I was a teenager, uh, I would go hunting with my dad a lot. He was a bird hunter. He had some uh, bird dog pointers that he raised, and we would go quail hunting. And then uh, during the fall and early winter, we would go deer hunting. I don't hunt. uh, I rarely hunt anymore. I just I love being in the woods, but for some reason I've developed an aversion to killing things. Not that there's anything wrong with hunting. There absolutely is not. I appreciate uh, hunting and I appreciate those times. Uh, But there's a lot about hunting I didn't enjoy. Uh, For one thing, uh, hunting evidently doesn't really work unless you're about to freeze to death. I mean I don't know that's that's the way I've found it you, 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 if you're going to hunt it has to be somewhere where you are miserably uncomfortable because you are freezing to death now I understand that now they make uh deer stands with uh like these portable heaters in them which I think is pretty ungodly in and of itself it takes a real cheese of a hunter to have to have a hunter in his I mean a heater in his deer stand but anyway Although I wish I'd have had that whenever I was freezing to death back whenever I used to hunt with my dad. You had to be freezing to death. Um, and I was raised in Cumming, Georgia. And for some reason, it was, it, there was an unwritten law in the hunting, deer hunting Bible that said, there are no deer within three hours of Cumming, Georgia, because you have to drive three hours into South Georgia to find a deer. Now it wasn't true, but that was in our deer hunters Bible. I know it was because uh, my dad and I were in a hunting club and we would always have to go down three hours South into South Georgia uh, to some uh, God forsaken place because evidently that was the only place where there were deer. How, how shocked I was. When 19 years ago, when our family moved to Palmetto, one Wednesday night, I'm driving from uh, Wednesday Night Church in our old building, down Waterworks Road toward uh, Ridley Road where we live. And, and some of you who've been here forever and a day, you, you know this place. You get right to where the, the right now, Baptist is on the right. Well, on the left, there's a field there that used to be owned by a guy named Tim Page. Uh, I don't know who owns it now, but Tim Page did not allow hunting on his property. Uh, he just didn't allow it, and uh, so he'd turn somebody in if he found them hunting on his property. And but he baited the field, not so that he could hunt, but just so the deer could have a place to, I guess, socialize. It was like dinner on the ground for deer, Baptist deer, you know. And I remember one Wednesday night, I'm coming home from church, and it's still light enough that uh, I, could, I could see, you know, both sides of the road. And, and right there at where Baptist Manor is now on the right, on Waterworks Road, I stopped and I looked to the left and I counted the number of deer in that field. And I lost count at 50. And you'd think I'd be overjoyed at, at seeing that number, that large number of deer in that field, but I suddenly had a rush of anger over me at my dad because he told me you had to go three hours into South Georgia to find the nearest deer and here the largest number of deer in any one place i would ever seen was in Fulton County. Fulton County. So we'd get up and we'd go three hours. I didn't like that. And then once we got into the deer camp... You'd, you'd get the camp all set up, and you'd have a place for the fire and all that kind of stuff. But I learned that if you're going to truly be a good deer hunter, you have to get up before God does. Because they would get us up at 3.30... And we would eat breakfast. They would build a fire. We'd eat breakfast. It would be really good breakfast. It would be bacon and eggs and all that kind of stuff. And and it would be super cold and it was dark. And we'd get on all of our layers of clothing. And I was freezing to death. So I wore about 50 layers of clothing. And dad would take us out to our deer stand. We'd climb up in that deer stand and just sit there and freeze for two hours before the sun would come up. And I talked with God about it one day after he had gotten up over there. And he said that I shouldn't have to get up before dark to go deer hunting, just so you know. And then the sun would start coming up. I didn't like having to be out there way before sun up. And I didn't like having to be out there three hours away from home. And I didn't like having to be out there where I was freezing to death. And then the sun would start to come up and I would start to rejoice because the sun was coming up. And I'm thinking, well, if the sun comes up, the the heat of the sun is going to warm things up, right? No. I, I don't know how many of you realize this. You know this. Some of you know this, but when the sun first starts coming up, it gets colder before it gets warmer. Now, that's right. That's a joke that God has played on deer hunters. They think it's going to get warmer. It gets colder. And, and, and it would take a good while after the sun would start coming up before I could get where I could see anything. It's really a dangerous time because that's when hunters really start, if they see a deer, because, because everybody believes that you have to be out there three hours before the deer show up. And then the deer shows up right about dawn, or if it's late in the evening, about dusk, and you can barely see. But every hunter thinks that he or she has eyesight good enough to see even in the, in the dawn or the dusk. And so they'll go to shooting a deer. It's really a dangerous time. In fact, this is true. Uh, this past week, there were two people who got killed because they were mistaken for deer. Uh, I don't know if it was early in the morning, late at night. It was, it was one or the other. Uh, so I began telling my dad about it, about how I'd like to be able to see better. And so, the. uh, Over one of our times back home, he bought me some glasses, some eyeglasses. They had these big lenses, huge lenses. And they had uh, brass-colored or gold-colored metal frames. And and, uh, except for the fact that the frames were thin instead of thick, I mean, Elvis could have worn these glasses. And Dad said, don't you take these glasses. He said, they'll help you when you go out into the deer stand. And so I I put them on, and they had yellow lenses. Now picture that. Picture me with glasses and yellow lenses on that look like Elvis, right? You just can't picture it, I know it. But I put those things on, and as the sun came up, I looked at the woods through those glasses, and it was amazing how much more clearly I could see. It was almost like by looking through those glasses, the sun was totally up. I could see a lot better, even even late in the evening. It was amazing how uh, a simple change of, of lens affected what I saw. And that leads me to the lens that we all wear. You see, I'm looking around here and some of you are wearing glasses like me, eyeglasses. But but, uh, hear this. I see eyeglasses everywhere. And it's called the lens through which we see the world. It's something that we call worldview. And the first thing I want you to get about worldview, and this is a, this is a, a I, I don't want you to check out on this because this is a, a, a very important Uh, subject to talk about. A worldview is the lens through which you and I see our world. Not only is it the lens through which we see our world, but it it is also the lens through which we interpret what we see. And because it is the lens through which we see and interpret our world, it is also a lens that impacts how we respond to our world. So as you can see, a worldview is absolutely important. Stephen Covey, I know you've heard his name. Stephen Covey wrote uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Principle-Centered Leadership, and so forth. He said this, he says, We see the world not as it is, but as we are. Or as we are conditioned to see it. He goes on to say this, he says, we must look at the lens through which we see the world and see that the lens itself shapes how we interpret the world. Now what that means here is that you and I see the world through our own set of filters and lenses and our own set of biases and what we see and how we see it Uh, determines or has a a huge impact on, on not only what we see, but how we comprehend what we see. But I want you to hear this. What we think we see may not be exactly the truth. And how we interpret what we see may not be truly an accurate interpretation. Now, sometimes it will be. Sometimes the way we view the world is very accurate, but a lot of times it won't be. In fact, more often than not, our perceptions are almost always, to some extent, skewed. And that is even made worse by the fact that we all have a sinful nature that helps skew reality in our world. A worldview is a lens through which we see the world. The second thing I want you to see about worldview is this. Everybody has a worldview whether we realize it or not. There's simply no escaping the fact that we all have biases and filters through which we interpret the world around us. And through these personal biases, through these personal filters, we see the world in a way that makes sense to us. Now, the fact that it makes sense to us may or may not mean that we have interpreted it correctly or that we see it accurately. Now, you probably are already convinced, most everybody here, that everyone has a worldview. And you may be thinking, Jimmy, why did you even put that up there? Why do we need that point up there? Right? And I'll tell you why. Because in all my years of being a pastor, I have, I, there's never been a congregation to, which, to whom I preached. But what there wasn't, there wasn't at least one person, usually several people, who no matter what I said, they were sitting there thinking, well, that don't apply to me that's not me. I don't have a worldview. And so there's always people like that now. And there are people like that here in this congregation. Now, I don't know who you are. I can't pick you out, but I know you're there because that family has multiplied through every Baptist church in the United States of America. They're in every church. And so I know there's somebody who's going to say, well, I don't think I have a, a worldview at all. But think about this. The very fact that, that that someone's immediate response to this statement would be, well, I don't have a worldview. That doesn't apply to me. That very fact indicates that they have a worldview that is tainted by cynicism. Everybody has a worldview, has a lens through which you and we, we look at our world. Now the third thing I want you to see about a worldview is that our worldviews, which we all have, have been formed and are currently being formed as a result of the influences on our lives throughout our lives. I mean, from the moment you're born until right now, there have been a a whole conglomeration of influences that have impacted, shaped, framed, and solidified the worldview through which you see your world. And I want to mention some of those factors, the, the way that we were raised, the way your mom and dad raised you, shaped your worldview. Um, I told the folks in the first service, I grew up in country Baptist churches in North Georgia. Um... They did not believe in uh, paid staff. They did not believe in any, any other translation of the Bible, except for the King James version. I had a young, young fellow who had professed, call to ministry in my church one time. And, and he had, he had been offered the opportunity to preach at one of our local churches up there. And he got up and he, he opened up his Bible. It was the first time he had preached. He was scared to death. And he started reading his text from the New International Version. And the pastor, who was seated behind him in the pulpit, got up. He had his Bible here and he says, hold on just a minute, son. And he laid his Bible down, which was King James's here. He said, now read from the, the Word. And he went and sat down. That happened. That happened. That was the culture in which, the religious culture in which I was raised. King James only, uh, the, theological education was absolutely off off base because if you had a theological education, you were wiping the Holy Spirit out. Preachers were not to use notes when they got up to preach because if they did that, the Holy Spirit wasn't th- speaking through them. I remember one time I was at my first church, I, I had a guy who was uh, helping me in revival and, uh, I mean, I'm telling you, if, the, if, if they had any inkling that you had a, any notes in your Bible or on the podium, they, some folks would just get up and walk out on you. Some of them would. But he got up, and he, uh, we were in a summer revival. At summer revival in those churches, you'd go to church on, on, at, at 11 o'clock every morning, Sunday through Sunday. 11 o'clock. Then you'd go eat lunch with some uh, family in the church and then you'd take a break and then you'd go eat supper with a family in the church. And then you'd go to the evening service. This happened uh, a full seven days in this revival. And so I would gain like, I don't know, 35 pounds during that week. But this guy who's the evangelist preaching in our our church, he was preaching one night and uh, he had his Bible held up like this and some, and a piece of paper fell out of it on the floor. Now, if I had a piece of paper in my Bible and it fell out on the floor, you would think nothing about it, right? I mean, it would, whatever. Is he going to pick it up or not? Right? But in that church, there was a fear that went over the whole crowd because they feared that those were his sermon notes. But he was, a, he was a joker and he was a quick thinker and he says, ah, he was a big old boy too. And he reached down, he grabbed it up and says, that was my dinner schedule for this week. Don't worry about it. And he shot that thing back in his Bible. And when he said it was my dinner schedule, the whole church, which was packed, they rolled with hilarious laughter because it was funny to them that it was not sermon notes, but rather it was a dinner schedule for this big preacher Now, those things in my own background, some of those things I've tried to lay aside, some of those things still impact me to some extent. What I'm trying to say is our worldview is influenced by things such as the way we were raised, such as the culture in which we grew up. If you grew up in the southeastern United States, and if you have not spent a whole lot of time outside the southeastern United States, your worldview is impacted geographically. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a neutral statement. But the fact is, the culture of the southeastern United States is different from any part of this country, let alone the rest of the world. And it is a worldview that, uh, it is a factor that impacts the worldview that we uh, see things through, the relationships that we had with our parents. Many of us do so many things just like our parents did. Even the things that we swore, I'm never going to do what my mom and dad did, and yet we'll turn right around and we will do exactly what they did. Or you have somebody, and I'm speaking again to the person who's immediately going to say, well, that's not me. That doesn't apply to me. Well, it, it, you may be in a case where you, you despise what, something that your mom and dad did so much that you have determined that throughout your life you're not going to do it like they did. But even in that instance, you're impacted by the way your mom and dad raised you. Our worldview impacted by our relationship. It's impacted by the type of music we, we listen to, the books we read, the movies that we're exposed to. It's, it's impacted by the news outlets that we watch. I mean, you, you can pretty well tell in a group of people who, who are the CNN watchers and who are the Fox News watchers. You're only laughing because it's true. We're impacted by the teachers and mentors we have listened to and followed, by our political affiliations, by our faith traditions. Worldview is impacted, it is formed over time by several influences. We are the result of an accumulation of influences on our worldview. Now the final thing I want to mention about this is a worldview should answer certain questions for you. A worldview is not really a worthy worldview if it doesn't answer some very important and and deep questions. For instance, here are some questions that a worldview should answer. First of all, why is there something instead of nothing? And how did we get here? Why is there a planet Earth as opposed to no planet? Why is there a universe as opposed to no universe? Why are you here? Why is there a you instead of a no you? A worldview, if it's worthy enough to be called a worldview, should begin to answer that question. A second question that it needs to answer is, what, what went wrong in our world? Is there any explanation as to why there's something wrong with our world? Now, I'm taking that question with the assumption that I'm not having to convince you that there's something wrong with our world. I'm not saying everything's wrong with our world. There's a lot of great stuff about our world. There's a lot of exciting stuff about our world. There's a lot of good work that's going on in our world, but... For every good thing, there's another evil thing that's going on. Something's wrong in our world. Heck, let me just tell you this. And some of you are already going to know this, but don't you amen when I say it. There's something wrong with me. I know it. I know that within me, there is a rottenness. There are times when I think things and I'm thinking, gosh, Jimmy, you're the pastor of a church, you've been a Baptist preacher forever and a day. You should not be thinking things like that. You should not be saying things like that. You should not you know uh, but but I'm not alone in this thing because you are rotten too. Some of you are more rotten than others. We're all rotten. Paul says in Romans 3, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what went wrong? How did that, which is wrong in our world and within us, how did it come about? A worldview begins answering that question. What is the solution to what is wrong in our world? Another way to put it, what is God doing? And the reason, somebody says, well, don't, don't lay that on God. Yeah, I'm laying it on God only because he's the only one who can fix it. We can't fix it. Governments obviously aren't going to fix it. Congress is not going to fix it. Military is not going to fix it. Diplomats can't fix it. Baptist preachers certainly aren't going to fix it. God's the only one who can fix it. So what is God's solution to what went wrong in our world? A worldview needs to deal with that. A fourth question that a worldview should ask is, or should answer is, where are we headed? How will this all end up? Is there any hope? How will it end? Does anybody have any idea what the last page of the last chapter looks anything like? And does it have anything good to say? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? And then the fifth question That really comes down to how we apply our worldview and how we apply what we're doing now is this. What should we do? And then there's a piggyback question to that. How should we do it? Once we have a worldview that explains how we got here. Why there's something instead of nothing. It explains how and why something went, went wrong in our world. And, and a worldview that starts offering some suggestions as to how, what God is doing to, to make things better. And a worldview that gives us some indication of how it's going to end up, both the good, bad, and the ugly, and the wonderful. And then, what are we going to do about that here and now? And how should we do it? All right? So, everybody has a worldview. It is the lens through which you view your world. Your worldview is the accumulation of experiences, influences throughout all of your life. It is still in the process of being formed. So the question is, so what? Okay, worldview, so what? So what? Here's the so what. Your worldview matters. The way you and I view our world matters John Moore is a writer. You may have heard of him. He said this one time. He says, your opinion is your opinion. Your perception is your perception. Do not confuse them with facts or truth. For he goes on and he says this. He says, for wars have been fought and millions have been killed because of the inability of men to understand the idea that everybody has a different viewpoint. Let me put that a different way. Millions and millions of people have been killed over disagreements regarding different worldviews held by different people. Listen, if a simple thing as a worldview can result in the deaths of millions of people, then don't you think your worldview is important? then don't you think the way you view your world, the lens that you wear to watch what's going on in your world, don't you think it's important? So what lens should we use? I'm going to be saying this in every message because this right here gets to the crux of the matter. What lens should we use? The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3 that whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul is saying there is that the lens through which you and I as Christians see the world and comprehend the world must be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ must be the primary and sometimes the solitary filter through which we digest and divulge every decision we make, every word we speak, every action we take, every attitude we embrace. He should be the lens through which we view our world and interpret what we should do in our world. Jesus Christ should be a more important lens than your family, your parents, your schooling, your teachers, your books, your music, your movies, your political affiliation, whatever you want to put in that blank line. That's why Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All these other things will be taken care of. But first, the primary lens through which you view your world must be Jesus Christ. Christ. That means that before we make any decision, we need to say, what would Jesus have done? What has Jesus done or said about this particular issue? And if Jesus said anything about it or did anything about it, that's still what Jesus would do about it. What's your worldview? What are some of the components that have impacted it over the course of your life? How important is Jesus in your worldview? Is he the most important thing? Can you and I begin to look at other people? Even people we don't like, even people we'd love to see turned away. Can we begin to look at them the way Jesus does? Let's pray. Lord, I love the way you see us. You see us purely, perfectly. You see all of our rottenness, you see all of our potential. You want to fix our rottenness, and you want to energize our potential. Lord, I wish that I would spend more time looking at my world through your lens. And I wish that more people in my world would look at things through your lens, because I believe we would see things differently. Lord, just help us to begin thinking about this. The glasses we wear to see our world. In Jesus' name, amen.